In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard Welcome to another episode of Strange Planet, and as always, thanks for sticking me in your ear. Let's imagine you wake up to a pitch black bedroom. Suddenly, you realize you can't move. A nefarious black shadow begins to walk slowly, ominously towards your bed. You try to scream, but nothing comes out. Has that ever happened to you? If it has, you're not alone. Online statistics estimate anywhere from 17 to 50% of the population has reported experiencing sleep paralysis at least once in their lifetime. Most people describe the experience as terrifying and attribute it to some sort of paranormal or demonic experience. But what most sufferers of sleep paralysis really want to know is, what is it, really? What are these entities targeting us? How can we stop it? Well, Vicki Joy Anderson is here. She'll share her research and belief as she attempts to answer these questions and more. Vicki graduated from the University of Northwestern in St. Paul, Minnesota, majoring in Bible and English with a writing emphasis. And, and after many years in corporate management, Vicki Joy stepped out in faith to become a full-time author and speaker in 2019, and her book is They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. Vicki Joy, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start with an easy an easy one. Why did you write, maybe it's not so easy, <laughs> why did you write the book? Oh, did you have an experience with sleep paralysis? Many, and um, that did eventually lead to the writing of the book. It was never my intention to do so, but this is something that I struggled with for my pretty much my entire life. It started um, to the best of my knowledge when I was around three years old. Um, perhaps it started earlier, but three years old was my first memory of it. And it was fairly recurring. Uh, I'd say two, three nights a, a week, and then it would maybe go away for a week or a month, and then it would come back. And 
This went on till I was 23 years old. And then I had a, a nice 15 year reprieve from it. And then it came back in a vengeance in uh, 2012, 2013, which is a pretty stressful time in my life. My mom was dying of cancer. I was had a very high stressful corporate management job and I was living out of state and away from kind of my family circle. And so the, the climate was sort of the perfect storm for being vulnerable to attack, I, I guess I would say. So um, yes, off and on for um, over 40 years and it was relentless. And while there are people that have had experiences that are far more terrifying than mine, um, mine was terrifying enough to my own experience, um, but it was the frequency um, of it and the longevity of it that sort of uh, made me an unwitting expert in it. You know, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but the interesting thing, Richard, because I've, I've always been a curious person. I've always been an inquisitive person. I've always sort of liked to explore the spiritual and philosophical and intellectual realms of why things happen. And so because of my curiosity and the kind of the way my brain is wired, because this happened to me so many times, I had the opportunity to try out my theories and test things. I would, I would get ideas in my head. And then the next time it happened, I would kind of look to see like, okay, is that happening? Or if I do this, is that going to happen? And um, a lot of that experimentation um, led to, um, I think some insights, many of which made, made themselves uh, their, their way into the book. So I think once I kind of stumbled upon some of these things and once I realized that I was not alone in this, because I spent about 30 years thinking nobody had ever experienced this, when I realized how prolific it is and how many people out there are suffering from this, I thought, you know, it's probably not right of me to come to... Um, a lot of insightful conclusions and then knowing that there's other people out there suffering, just keep my mouth closed. So that's what led to the um, desire to, to put it in book form. Can you describe, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word typical. There's nothing typical about this, but sure. your night uh, visitation experience was like. Yes. Mine was kind of of the very basic sort. Thank goodness, because I, I hear other people's stories and I think, oh, my God, <laughs> my goodness, I don't know how I could have coped with that. I had trouble enough with, with what I had. Mine was the very typical one that you hear about where you wake up and you're a little disoriented. You you don't really know if you're awake or you're asleep. And what's confusing about it is you see your bedroom, you see your surroundings. And so it very much feels like you're awake in your dark bedroom. But there's a very, very different feel to it. It's almost like you're in your room, but you're not like, it's almost like in an alternate dimension somewhere, your room has been reconfigured. It's almost like the, uh, um, the, the glitch in the matrix scene where he sees the black cat looping. And um, that was a fascinating aha moment for me, actually, because what I realized at that moment is every time I would be in these periods in my bedroom where I would wake up, I noticed that there was always one thing wrong with my room. There was something in the blueprint of the room that was not reality. The door would be on the wrong wall, or I would have a headboard that wasn't my real headboard, or um, there would be like something on the desk that really wasn't there. there. There was always this glitch. There was always this thing that didn't belong. And so I don't know if that was, you know, a way of like tripping a lucid dream state. Like if you could realize like, wait, that's not really my room. Or I don't know if it was that this was some sort of a visualization or an overlay and that they, for some reason, they just can't quite get it a hundred percent. So I found that very intriguing and very mysterious. So I would, I would wake up as it were in my room or, or wherever I was. And I never really saw anything. Like I never saw the shadow man or any of these various entities. But for anyone who's experienced this, they can tell you, you know, it's there and you know exactly where it is in the room. And when that thing starts to move, you know exactly where it is. You, you can trace its path. You don't even have to see it. You just, you know, it's there. It's like it, you're bound up with it at that point. Uh, and so it will start at the door and this comes into, um, 
a great importance later on if we start talking about um, the, the 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 lore of, of vampires and ancient demonic entities and threshold covenants. They usually start at the door and then they make their way in and there's a increasing mounting terror as it gets closer. And um, some people, I never experienced this, but many people will say that they feel a pressure on their chest, like something is sitting on them. Many people will report that they see some sort of entity sitting on them. Some people say that they can't breathe, that they feel that they're being crushed. Other people say that they feel that they're being strangled. I never had that um that I had more of just the terror and the 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 knowledge that this there was something in there I was not alone it was coming towards me but as it drew nearer um there was almost like a telepathic conversation going on there was never an audible voice um but the the messages in the head um were very clear um no one can help you no one can hear you scream uh no one is going to come and get you uh, we hate you. You're going to hell. No one can help you. It's a, it's a it's a sense of just utter um, trapped in a corner um, feeling. And then for me, I would have all of the auditory hallucinations. Um, these are the I, I come to I I couldn't figure out what it was for many many years until I stumbled upon upon the word vibration. It was vibrational tones in the ear that kind of sounded like a, a helicopter in your ear. And the terror would increase at that point. And I did find out many, many years later that this is the actual um, sound of the soul or the light body or the astral body, whatever you want to call it, um, starting to tear from the physical body and starting to um, exit the body. And I fortunately, I've only had one out-of-body experience that I know of, and it was just mortifyingly terrifying. And um, I only got um, kind of to the middle of my room. I didn't go into the astral or anything. Um, and all of the experiences where I've been in, in the astral, Richard, they have been um, unprovoked by me. It's not something that I was intentionally aiming for or wishing to do or wanting to go. And th those times I was always unaware of any sleep paralysis or out-of-body experience. I just woke up there um, kind of unannounced and so there, there's a lot of tie-ins between sleep paralysis, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreaming, and astral projection. And they're kind of different stops along the line. You know, um, sleep paralysis is kind of like the the astral Uber that comes in to pick you up and then the out-of-body experience and then you're lucid and then you're in the astral. And so that, that's your 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 destina destination. And I think um, the the end goal for a lot of these experiences, I think, are to get people pulled into the astral. Um, and I think that doesn't happen for a lot of people because fear or wiggling their toes or screaming or someone sleeping with them in the room who senses something's wrong and wakes them up or crying out to the name of Jesus. These are things that you hear the most often as to abruptly stop a sleep paralysis episode and so depending on how quickly one is able to uh, squirm their way out of this or stop the experience, um, they're not going to escalate into those other various levels into the astral. Um, were each of your, you know, over the span of 40 years, I mean, were, were each of them pretty much, did they all pretty much play out that way? Pretty much, but interestingly, so that's the way it was um, all the way, like until I was 23, that's the way it was. When it came back in my late 30s, early 40s, it was a much more intense um, experience. So there was a lot going on in my life at that time. And unlike um, my earlier experiences, I didn't even hear the phrase sleep paralysis until I was in my mid to late 30s. So all the years that it had happened to me prior um, I didn't know what was happening and I just kind of thought that they were bad dreams or I thought, you know, um, this is probably the result of some sort of stress or trauma. And so I kind of thought it was all my fault or I need to get more sleep or my circadian rhythm is off or, or whatever, fill in the blank. Once I realized, okay, sleep paralysis is a thing. Other people are experiencing this. There's something supernatural involved with this. Um, once I sort of knew what it was, um, 
it's almost as if they didn't have to operate incognito anymore, kind of like the jig was up. So as long as you know what's going on, we can kind of operate freely. That was sort of, it was almost sort of like a taunting, mocking sort of an experience after that. So in my 40s, what it was, was um, it was more um, things manifesting in the physical where I would see things moving under the covers and then I would you know, I would rebuke it and, and you could see things kind of slithering out of the bed. And, and, uh, there were more visualizations and hallucinations and, um, weird, weird things that I almost feel, you know, silly even saying because they're so bizarre, like, um, like fireballs in the sky, like in the, in the middle of the room, like fireballs and, that would be accompanied with sound effects and smells like it would, you could actually smell like the cinders. And so it was, it was sort of unlike a, a visual hallucination because it, it, it occupied several of the senses and these things were very frightening. And um, there was about a five week period um, in probably, um, you know, the 2013 um, where I would have one of these experiences every single night, five weeks in a row. It was relentless. And all the little tricks they tell you, you know, like you cry out to Jesus or pray before you go to bed and do this, or, you know, it, it did not matter what little trick or talisman um, I tried. Uh, nothing broke that. It, it was a five week streak before it was finally broken. But when it was broken, it was broken for a very, very long time. So um, it did get a little bit more uh, intense. And and then what's happened in the years since kind of staving off the sleep paralysis is um, now things are, are, are just are different. They, I think that whenever you kind of shut and lock a door that they can't get into anymore because the, the spirit realm and the astral realm, they're very legalistic. They're bound by by rules that they have to keep. And so when you, when you figure out their, their, their rules, um, they, they sort of have to abide by them. So what they do, they don't just give up. They find new ways to kind of worm their way in. And so I haven't had a lot of sleep paralysis in the last 10 years, but now it's more, um, waking up in the astral and having to get myself awake. And it's more astral stuff now, which again, like the sleep paralysis was completely unprovoked and uninvited and not something that I'm seeking. Before you arrived at the supernatural origin for this phenomenon, did you try and pursue all of the possible prosaic explanations? Did you, you know, have a, I don't know, um, a CT scan? Did you have all of that stuff? No, nothing. And I'll tell you why. I, I, I just thought that they were nightmares, and it made sense that I was having a lot of nightmares um, because. I had gone through a lot of trauma. I had surgeries from from 10 days old. I had my first major reconstructive surgery, um, an exploratory brain surgery. I was born with a birth defect. And so by the time I was 23, which was like my first round of sleep paralysis, it made sense to me that, man, I was this kid having all these surgeries and I was getting teased at school and I had a lot of anxiety. And so it just made sense to me that, of course, a kid going through all that is going to have, you know, stress and nightmares. And so... It made sense to me, but what really kept me quiet, Richard, is that when I was 15, I I had told a friend, I confided in a friend, like during a sleepover or something, and I explained it all to her, and like her eyes were as wide as pizzas, and I mean, because this was way before the internet and, you know, all this disclosure, like people didn't talk about stuff like this back, this was probably in the late 80s, right? And so... I went home that day, like feeling like, oh, what a relief. And I finally told someone and they didn't, you know, they, they, you know, believed me and this is great. But then I ran into her to, uh, it's to, in school on Monday and she had went and talked to her mother and, um, her mother was a devout Catholic. And she's like, I talked to my mom and she said, you're demon possessed and we have to get a priest to perform an exorcism on you because you're, you're possessed by demons. And I'm like, okay, I can't tell people about this. You know, you know what I mean? Cause like, if all I'm going to do is kind of become this, you know, um, anomaly where people are going to be doing all of their various experimentations on me. And so I basically, I just kept it quiet. I, I realized at 15, I can't talk to people about this. There, there's not enough known about this. And, 
Um, of course, I didn't have a term for it at 15 years old. So I was just saying, I have these dreams, you know, and so I, I'm sure I sounded like a lunatic, but, <laughs> but so no, I never explored anything. You know, I was, I'm old enough now where when in the seventies and the eighties, when, when people experienced things, there was not a, like parents didn't have a knowledge of mental health and uh, psychotropic medications and the DSM, you know, like that wasn't really out really in, in the, in the common vernacular at that point, you know? So, um, I, I don't want to delve, you know, into your, uh, uh, your personal life, but when you were having, when you were an adult and you were having these episodes of sleep paralysis, uh, was there someone in the house with you who, who, um, I don't know, witnessed what was happening to you or you know what I'm asking? I'm not sure I'm yeah, not. I do. No, there was not. I was living alone at the time. And, um, you know, I, my mom, my mom had passed at that point, And so I would call my dad and my, my dad, he always believed me. And one thing I'll say about my dad, he's a very unique character. He's in his seventies now, way back in like the 1970s, you know, when I was a child, my dad would talk about UFOs and UFO abductions and um, government conspiracies and Roswell and and stuff that's like just become sort of popular podcast fodder in the last five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know where my dad heard about this stuff because there was no Internet. And um, I don't even know where he was introduced to this stuff, but he was well beyond his um his 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 years in understanding and seeing through a lot of that stuff and um believing that it was true and so um i i i was able to talk to my dad about it and he you know believed me and but the the thing that was the thing that's kind of hard is you know especially if you're raised in if you're raised in religious circles and you go like, I'm going to confide in my pastor or I'm going to, you know, confide in someone in the church. You know, these are people who, you know, basically live and abide by the guidebook to the supernatural, which is L.A. Marzulli's term for the Bible. Yes. I mean, you, you're not going to get more supernatural than than the Bible. I mean, you've got people raising from the dead and, you know, walking Absolutely. on water and it's pretty supernatural stuff. And so you think if anyone's going to be open-minded to the super, to the supernatural, it's going to be people that believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but it's really not the case. There's this bizarre cognitive dissonance amongst much of, of Christendom. And it's not to say that everyone's in this category, but you go to someone in the church and you, you tell them about a, an experience that you've had that's paranormal or supernatural. And the typical knee-jerk reactions you get, probably out of fear, in all honesty, is um, are you dabbling with the Ouija board? Um, have you ever dabbled with the Ouija board? Are you watching like occult movies? What you know, what um do you have a pornography addiction? Are you sinning? Are you it, it, it's some sort they're trying to find some door that you've opened through rebellion or wickedness or sin and um, not to poo poo that we can't open doors because I know that we can, but when you've got the secular world saying this is perhaps a mental illness, it's perhaps narcolepsy, it's perhaps drug or alcohol addiction, it's perhaps schizophrenia. And then you go to the church and they're telling you, what, what have you done? What have you been dabbling with? Anywhere you go, the message you're getting is, um, if you're even telling the truth, what did you do to bring this on? And so, the fingers are all pointing back at you. And so it's very hard to find someone who's empathetic or willing to kind of get to the bottom of it with you, which just breeds further isolation, which just breeds further. Uh, it's just a further breeding ground for attack because now you're isolated and you're alone. And, um, you know, we see it all over our society with like conspiracy theorists and stuff. The, you know, we see it in the films too. Like anytime we encounter something and we go to other people like, Hey, you got to see this. You got to see this. You got to understand this. Um, it, we just look crazy. We look like we're out of our minds. We're going to take a quick time out 
and uh, come back and discuss sleep paralysis. Some call it the hag syndrome, the old hag syndrome. Vicki Joy Anderson, my guest, the only, they only come out at night exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Truth will set you free, 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 free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Vicki Joy Anderson is with us. The book is They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. Um, what is the proper term for it now? Because sleep paralysis uh, sounds more like the prosaic, materialist yes. explanation for this. Uh, you know, throughout folk folklore, it's been referred to as the old hag syndrome. Is is there a new updated, more appropriate term? Not that I know of, but I think it's high time for that, Richard, because one of the things that I had to clarify in the book is that sleep paralysis is an actual legitimate thing that every human being experiences multiple times a night upon waking, coming in and out of sleep. And it's tip, it's normal and it's seamless and it usually goes by unnoticed. It makes perfect sense that there are certain sleep cycles of deep sleep where there's aspects of our physiology that go into stasis and that are paralyzed, if you prefer that word, because if we acted out our dreams, we would, we could sleepwalk, we could do violence, we could, you know, just even wet the bed, right? So there's things that we do that just kind of keep us to like, we're staying put there, you know, while we're asleep. So um, there are many people, and it's happened to me too, you can have sleep paralysis where you wake up in that altered state of consciousness where you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep. And there's nothing frightening accompanying it. There's no visualizations. There's nothing evil. There's nothing demonic. And in fact, it's actually quite pleasurable. You wake up and you're like, oh, I'm asleep. And oh, this feels so good. And oh, my alarm isn't going to ring. And I've got time to sleep before I get up. It's a, it's a very relaxing, um, very nice feeling. And so where, where a lot of people get tripped up with the people that talk about sleep paralysis, if you've never experienced experienced the nasty kind, but you've experienced the regular physiological kind, you're like, well, I've experienced this all the time. That nothing happens. You guys are crazy. So it, it is necessary to differentiate that um, what we're talking about here with all of the hallucinations and such, this would more technically be referred to as a sleep paralysis episode or a sleep paralysis experience. Cause it's something that's, it's something that's occurring during a regular bout of sleep paralysis. It's not actually the sleep paralysis itself. And so you bring up a really good point and one that I do try to explain in the book because um, a lot of the naysayers, that's kind of the ace up their sleeve. Like, well, I get this all the time and I don't see or sense anything evil. So um, what, what I would say to those people is there are realities out there that fall outside of your subjective experience, you know, and maybe this isn't an apples to apples comparison, but you know, I have friends who have explained to me what it feels like to go in a diabetic coma. And I've never experienced that, but that doesn't mean I disbelieve them when they tell me that they have. And so um, I, I think that we need to be more uh, open-minded to the fact that um, sometimes when people are talking about things that we absolutely cannot relate to, our fear or our cognitive dissonance or our lack of experience does not automatically make that person an attention seeker or a liar um, or a crazy person or a drug addict. Um, there are just very, very unexplainable mysteries on this planet, some of which we've discovered, some of which we're on the precipice of discovering, some of which we have yet to even ever know about. Uh, I want to try to make the case that although, as you say, from religious quarters, it often unfortunately becomes a blame the victim type of situation. I would argue at least the religious quarter, they're, they're closer to the truth than the materialists in that they seem to at least appreciate that this involves a component of spiritual warfare. Absolutely. 100% agree with you there, Richard. And I, I think too, what why we need and a, a huge part of why I wrote this book is really hoping that it gets into the hands of pastors uh, because unbeknownst to a lot of pastors, this is a common experience for believers. And in fact, many times it's believers who are being harassed. Um, it, there's a very 
um, often um, overlooked verse in the book of Daniel that talks about in the end times, this, this, this antichrist, this beast, he will um, wear out the saints. That's part of the end times agenda is just, it's not even destroying the saints. It's just wearing them out. And one way to wear people out spiritually is to just attack them repeatedly in their sleep to the point where they're afraid to go to sleep at night. And um, a lot of people who experience this are believers and it's not because they're hypocrites and they're opening up doors because they're, they've got secret sins. I mean, I'm not saying that can't happen, but um, we have to have more than one category um, for people in the church that are experiencing this. And in many cases, and I go through some of this in the book, um, in some cases, believers are harassed by this because they are, in fact, on the precipice of some sort of very useful work for the kingdom. A lot of right. people I've spoken to, they've never experienced this until they went to seminary. They never experienced this until they decided to become a missionary and went overseas. They never experienced this until they got their first pastorate, you know, things like that. And so we've got another category there that, um, you know, in some senses, let's Let's prove to these people that they're cowards. Let's prove to these people that they don't have faith. They're under spiritual attack. So there must be some open door and it shakes people's faith and it scares them out of their calling. And so that's another category. Another category, and this isn't a real fun one to talk about, but there are a lot of people who experience this for many years and all the little tricks that work for a lot of people don't work for them because God is actually allowing it for a season to continue because they're being trained in spiritual warfare. You know, when we look at King David, King David didn't just wake up one day and grab stones and kill a Nephilim. He killed the bear first and the lion first. And so that bear and that lion were confidence builders where by the time Goliath showed up, he's like, I know I can kill this guy because I wrestled a bear to the ground with my bare hands. <laughs> you know, so he mm. had that confidence and um, where all of his brothers and, and his other fellow um, Israelites in the army, they were terrified of this giant. And it's probably because they hadn't had the training. You know, they'd gone to boot camp and they learned all of the scenarios and they'd done the test drills. Well, you're starting to... But they'd cut in and so cutting in and out a little sometimes bit. Sometimes I think with the sleep... You're cutting in and out a little bit. Okay. There. That's okay. Can I am just... getting a little... Okay. How about now? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. And maybe I just get you to back up a little bit to talking okay. about uh, how most people were afraid of uh, Goliath, but uh, David had, you know, he had sort of graduated from the bear to the lion, and so he was prepared. Yes, yes. So I, I think that the reason why David's brothers and his um, other fellow Israelites in the army why they were afraid of Goliath wasn't necessarily because they weren't trained or skilled at warfare or that they hadn't faced other battles before um, or that they were cowards. It was that they hadn't been tested in this area. And David didn't see it as a, uh, a mere battle. Uh, he saw a spiritual element to it because when, when he went to Goliath, he didn't say like, Hey man, you know, uh, he, he didn't have a, a patriotic speech. You know, it wasn't like Israel's the best. We're bringing you down, man. Like that wasn't his speech. What he said to, to, to Goliath, he said, how, basically, how dare you blaspheme the name of the God of Israel? How dare you come onto Israel's turf and challenge the God that we serve? He saw it as a spiritual battle. That was spiritual warfare to David. He wasn't just looking at that as a mere military conquest. And so I, I do think that sometimes the reason why believers are encountering these things is because some of us will perhaps be alive in those end days where the beast comes and attempts to wear out the saints. And we're going to sniff it out. And we're going to say, I know what's going on here because it's happened in my bedroom a million times and I can smell it and I can feel it. And I've been here before. And I've conquered this thing in my bedroom, so I'm going to conquer it on the battlefield, too. All right, more to come. Stay with us. Welcome back, Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
and we are back. Vicki Joy Anderson. The book is They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. You are mentioning your father, and uh, he, uh, he talked about UFOs and alien abductions decades before it was vogue, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did, did he counsel you? Did he see a connection between the alien abduction phenomenon and what was happening to you? I, I know that when I was very young, I, when I would talk about these dreams, he very much associated it with the demonic. Now, I don't know how early he introduced that term because at some point I was four or five years old and, you know, I was very aware of angels and I was where, very aware of the fact that there were fallen ones, you know, cause I mean, I went to Sunday school and this was back in the seventies where they actually told you what, what the Bible said was really going on, you know? And so, um, what, what he did was he would he he would equip me and he he said you know when these things are when these things show up in in the room you say this and you do this and um and so i would i would have scriptures that i would have memorized and and so i would call on the name of jesus and and the thing is that the 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 episode would stop immediately but what a lot of people don't realize is even after you know it's over and you're awake and it's gone you have this residual adrenaline rush and you're still pretty scared until you go back to sleep and you wake up even sort of scared. And so it doesn't just go away just because it stops. And so I remember memorizing um, like verses like, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. The Lord, your God is with you wherever you will go. And so it would remind me as a child that, okay, he's with me. I don't have to be afraid. And, and then as I got older, I, I memorized Psalm 27, um, um, that, you know, just talks about not being afraid, though, though the enemies, you know, come in a Psalm 91, obviously. And what would happen just because it happens so often is I would just call in the name of Jesus and without even having to think about it, just by instinct, I would just start quoting these verses and, and be able to like, uh, talk myself down off of that adrenaline rush and, and be able to, to, to go back asleep. But, um, but yeah, so I think my parents absolutely knew that it was spiritual, but because none of us had ever heard of this phenomenon before, and there wasn't really a term for it, at least not out in the open, um, I think we all thought that they were bad dreams, but we we believed that it was the enemy, you know, traumatizing me and bothering me. And so I, I think we always had a sense that it was something spiritual, but it wasn't until I became familiar with the work of Russ Dizdar and got to know Russ and got to hear him speak a lot. The first time I heard Russ Dizdar say sleep paralysis like is an actual entity in your room. Um, it just like it terrified me all over again, because, you know, in retrospect, you look back and think that stuff was scary enough as it was. And now you're telling me that that whole time that those things were actually in my room and they were real and, it, it it was frightening, but then at the same time, it also made me think of um, one of the verses in Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And to just realize that even as a child, in weakness, in utter vulnerability, in ignorance, in innocence, that even though I didn't have a leg to stand on and I had no idea what I was up against, um, that I was not alone in those situations and that the name of Jesus and the word of God were arrows in my arsenal. And I had them even as a four and a five year old and I wielded them. And, and that's kind of going back into what we were saying before the break that, you know, there's a lot of things that the church defines as spiritual warfare, but I think we miss a lot of things because you know what, when you're in a dark bedroom at night and you're, you're calling on the name of Jesus or you are quoting scriptures you are fighting spiritual warfare battles. You, There are things going on in the spirit realm that you can't see when you are initiating those words. And God only knows what sort of terror is turning back onto those enemies when you pull those kind of arrows out of your arsenal. So here I was, three-year-old, four-year-old, and I thought that I was the victim. And then I come to find out later that God was using a silly, ignorant little four-year-old to send these things screaming from the bedroom. It it really is an amazing uh, concept if you think of it in those terms, because a lot of us, we think sleep paralysis is scary. 
we're the victims, they're after us, we're vulnerable. And uh, that's what might be happening in the physical or in your own mind. But when we speak these things out into the ether, there are things going on behind the veil that we know nothing about. We see uh, an instance of this in Daniel when he had to wait three weeks for the angel to rescue him. And the angel's like, I've been doing war back here with these guys. It took me three weeks to get to you. So we have no idea what sort of uh, warfare is going on behind the spirit, the spiritual veil when when we make war with these things that are uh, harassing us. Just getting back to the alien question for a moment. Do you yeah. think that that the sleep paralysis episode in part or in whole explains the alien abduction phenomenon? I think that they're connected. And I know that there's people that research both that that don't agree with this but there are um obviously there's abduction things that happen when there's abduction experiences that happen when people are wide awake they're driving in their car they're out in the middle of the cornfield it's broad daylight you know um they see the craft and it, it, it's different than being um asleep at night but there are um people who contact me and they're like i have to tell you about my sleep paralysis and you know when when 99 out of 100 people tell the same sleep paralysis story and then you've got someone that it doesn't fit the mold, but it fits this other mold, you start to realize this is something else. And so it starts as sleep paralysis. It starts in this altered state of consciousness and it starts in their bed at night. But the differences that I find are um, people that have the classic sleep paralysis. Um, it's in total darkness. They're in, a, in the room and it's total darkness. And sometimes it's even darker than dark. Um, meaning that they can't see the entity, but they know it's there because there's something in the room that's even darker than the darkness. Um, with people that have the sleep paralysis versions of, of UFO abduction, they're talking about bright lights. Bright lights are in the room. The room is being lit up. And many times the, the light is coming through a window. And with sleep paralysis, a lot of times these entities are standing at the door and so in both cases, you have a liminal space, you have a door and a window, but the UFO abductions tend to be bright lights at the window and the sleep paralysis tends to be darkness by the door. Um, so there are, there are also very unique nuances to both as you get to talking to people. A lot of the people that have had many sleep paralysis experiences, once you get into their history, they'll talk about some sort of trauma, some sort of childhood trauma. For me, it was all the surgeries. Uh, with the people that have the UFO version of the sleep paralysis, where they're they're not seeing shadow men and old hags, they're seeing alien greys. Um, if you get into their history and their trauma, their trauma is oftentimes very specifically sexual abuse mm. um, or ritual abuse. And so it's not often the case. So, you know, if if you're talking to someone or counseling someone who says that they've had a uh, UFO phenomenon, we can't just jump to the conclusion that they've been sexually abused. You know, it's, it's not a you know, there's no um, one size fits all thing with this. But just in the numerous people that I've talked to, I find that. When someone wants to tell me their sleep paralysis story and they're talking about bright lights and they're talking about windows and they're being talked about, um, this is another difference. Um, sleep paralysis people, if they leave their body, they talk about floating up toward the ceiling and getting into the astral. And UFO abductees will talk about being dragged toward the window and out the window. Um, so they're being dragged horizontally, at least at first. Um, so there are many nuances Um that make the two very unique. It's clearly a very different experience. I've never experienced anything like the UFO phenomenon. Um, but I do think that sometimes um, the UFO abduction phenomenon begins in a sleep paralysis experience. Uh, are, are, are sleep paralysis episodes often sexual in nature? They can be, um, not always. And not always overtly. So we've all heard about, you know, the rape demon, the sex demon, the incubus, the succubus. I do talk about that a lot in the book. And um, historically, actually, the, the the incubus did not used to be in history, like in antiquity. They didn't think that that was a demon. It was an actual witch. It was actually people practicing witchcraft and black magic who would just, um, 
you know, was the early form of remote viewing where human beings would astral project into the room, you know, with the assistance of black magic and ritual and, and, and all of that, of course. But, um, so there are people that will talk about literal and physical, um, encounters and, and rapes. Um, but there are a lot of other people that, um, these stories don't get told as much because people are embarrassed and, um, but there's a lot of people that will say that they have a sleep paralysis experience and they, they wake up masturbating and they don't know, or they'll wake up with all their clothes off and they can't explain that, or they'll wake up with marks or pains or things like that. But another thing that I'm starting to, um, starting to learn about in, since the, since the publication of the book and people who have contacted me and, you know, when, and when you're on the phone with people and they get comfortable and they realize, okay, I'm finally able to talk about this. And it's with someone who believes me and they're not going to laugh at me. Um, you'll usually get to that point in the conversation where they'll say, I've never told anyone this before, but, and many times when you get to that point in the conversation, I, I have several case studies now of people that have said that between the ages of three and seven, that they would have all of these sleep paralysis experiences um, before they would have any concept of the existence of sex or knowing what that is. And um, that they would wake up masturbating and they would have a sexual awakening because this is something that they hadn't discovered prior. And that as the sleep paralysis experiences continued, as they got older and older, it would get um, more and more graphic and more and more sexual and more and more perverted in many cases. And in essence, what I'm finding is that for some people at a very young age, this sleep paralysis experience is actually a grooming experience and so to, to sexualize and to over sexualize um but i do think that you know it is possible to have um a sleep paralysis experience it's not sexual you and i think this is another reason why a lot of people don't want to admit that they've had sleep paralysis because so many people assume then that that means something sexual and so they don't want to say it because they don't want that assumption to be made so we can't say that 100 percent of the time it is something sexual sometimes Sometimes the um, the goal, the end goal is to awaken these people towards um, getting involved in more psychic things and new age things and, and getting into um, he becoming heavy hitters in the new age movement and becoming teachers and gurus. And so not not every every person has the same experience. It's it's almost kind of like, you know, when you join the army, like some people are, are given KP duty and some people, you know, are, are trained in ballistics and other people, you know, are trained how to drive the Humvees. And so it's almost like the, the enemy is doing the same thing that, that, that God is doing. He's building an army too, and he's got plenty of positions to fill. So he doesn't have the same, um, task in mind for everyone. So to just say, Hey, what's the, what's the point in sleep paralysis? What, what are they trying to do? It's complicated because there's there's many end goals um, that they're accomplishing. How do you get it to stop? Well, that's a great question because there is a difference between how do you get an episode to stop and how do you get the experience of it to stop permanently? And I think um, it's great that so many people, even outside of the realms of spirituality, have under have become have become aware that crying out to the name of Jesus will very abruptly stop one of these. And I've had atheists tell me that I've heard Muslims say that um, uh, it cracked me up one time, a Muslim in a message board said, Hey, I don't believe in the guy, but it works. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. But the the fact is, is if there is some sort of open door, um, if you, if you cry out on the name of Jesus, it'll stop. But if you don't also shut the door and lock it, it's, you're just going to keep having to do that over and over and over again. And so the ultimate goal should, shouldn't be like, how do I get this to stop when it happens? It should be, how do I get this to stop permanently? And that gets into far more complex realms. And it's different for everybody because it depends on their upbringing and trauma that they've been through, ancestral things that they may or may not be aware of. It has to do with um, how involved they were in possibly in witchcraft. Are there any addictions? Are there any strongholds? I go through all of this in the book, whole chapter on all of this and how to break strongholds and how to cleanse, you know, your heart and your mind. But there's also, um, in many cases, there's covenants that are being made in the astral. 
And those covenants have to be broken. And I go in, in detail in the book in chapter four, um, about the, the ancient origins of these threshold covenants. They're all over the world. The most prominent threshold covenant, um, ceremony that we see is Passover when the Israelites painted their doors with blood and the angel passed over. That, that wasn't a one-off thing or a new thing. It was an age old practice of threshold covenants where you would, sacrifice an animal at the door and you would paint the door frames with the blood and it would be a way of welcoming guests in. It was a form of uh, hospitality. It was a way, uh, it was a, it was a way of covenanting with the deity of the house or with the guests of the house. And what's really clever is all of these threshold covenants are still in place and the spirit realm knows about them. And they're banking on our ignorance of them. All of this stuff has fallen out of the of the public consciousness. And so we don't know about these things. And we just think they're antiquated or we're, we're, we think that they're things that Semitic cultures did hundreds of years ago and they don't apply, um, but they do. And um, the reason why it's significant that so many of these entities come to your window or your door is because they're liminal spaces, they're, they're, th- they're thresholds. And so there's also a lot of tie-ins then to our modern vampire mythology where you you cannot be you know harassed by a vampire unless he you give him invitation and once he has invitation he crosses the threshold but until he crosses the threshold he can't bother you this is all tied back into threshold covenants and so once these things come over the threshold and into the bedrooms uh, we can cast them out um, but we actually need to undo those threshold covenants and um, it's a complex, it's, it's, it's not hard to understand, but it's complex to under, it's, it's too complex to explain in a few minutes here. I, I take great pains to explain all of this in, in the book because you do have to have a little bit of patience as I, as I build the argument, because this is an ancient, ancient practice. They only come out at night, exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis. Vicki, a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate you having me. Vicki Joy Anderson. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. And that would be great. And Richard, I don't know if you can drop it in there somewhere. Um, the book is not on Amazon yet. It's exclusively only on lamarzuli.net. Awesome. That'd be great. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye.